reason why we die um, younger than 36 other countries is we spend our whole industry doing procedures and tests all day and not preventing illness and not identifying illness at a very early stage. And all of our economic incentives in healthcare are built around learning how to do procedures and tests. And doctors all who want to make money want to do as many procedures and tests as possible. And that's been a very destructive incentive. In this episode, we interview Dr. Jonathan Burroughs. Dr. Burroughs is the president and CEO of the Burroughs Healthcare Consulting Network. He works with some of the nation's top healthcare consulting organizations to provide best practice solutions and training to healthcare organizations throughout the country. Dr. Burroughs serves on the national faculty of the American College of Healthcare Executives and the American Association for Physician Leadership. He is the author of many books on healthcare leadership, including Redesign the Medical Staff Model, a Collaborative Approach, which was the winner of the 2016 James A. Hamilton Award for Outstanding Healthcare Management Book of the Year. Dr. Burroughs received his bachelor's degree at Johns Hopkins University and his MD from Case Western Reserve University. He also received a healthcare MBA with honors from Eisenberg School of Management. We hope you enjoy our conversation where we talked about knowing yourself, the importance of physician healthcare executives, and following the money in medicine. As always, if you like what we're doing, give us a positive rating and follow our social media pages for more content. In addition, we're looking forward to growing our team in the coming months, so you can check out our social media pages for more information about becoming an addition to the Leading the Rounds team. We hope you enjoy this inaugural episode of season two of Leading the Rounds and keep an eye out for changes this season as we're looking forward to adding more content that you can use to become a better future physician leader. We hope you enjoy this episode of Leading the Rounds. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today, we're so privileged to have Dr. John Burroughs on the show with us today. Before we get started, Peter, how are you doing today? Caleb, um, I'm glad, but I'm also a little uh, sad because I think lately it's been that time in our careers that we've been alluding to when I diverge into my PhD and you're going off to become an M3. So I feel a little, you know, left behind, but happy to start in the lab. And it's been busy since I started, but I feel really good about everything that's been going on. Good. I'm excited for today. I'm really excited for today. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Really excited for this interview. And like you mentioned, really excited to finally get to the hospital in M3 and start that part of medical training. I'm, I'm excited to hear everything you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. Dr. Burroughs, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you. And I remember my M3 year very well. Any, any tidbits or um, words of advice jumping into it? Yeah, be a sponge. 
Uh, don't pretend like you know anything. In fact, when you go on the first day, assume you know nothing and just be a sponge and soak in because practical medicine is totally different than the basic sciences. It has nothing to do, it, it, it applies with physiology and anatomy and pathology and all the things you've learned, but the skills you're going to learn are intuitive skills that you're going to learn very complex pattern recognition, none of which you learn the first two years. So assume you know nothing, go in with a tabla rasa, a blank slate, and just be a sponge and learn from every single patient. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. Right, right, definitely. I love that advice. <laughs> so we wanted to start off this interview and ask you, so we're a leadership podcast, and we wanted to ask you, how have you developed your leadership philosophy over time? Well, it's trial and error. You know, it's like life happens while you may, we're making other plans, you know, that cliche. Um, and you learn leadership uh, by necessity as a survival skill. And what I mean by that, you see things that need to happen and need to mobilize other people to make those things happen. And you can read all the books you want, but there's no substitute for practical experience. And when you see something that has to happen, you know it has to happen, it's not happening, and you need to rally other people around it, that forms the germative seed of leadership. Um, and by the way, parents are leaders. They lead children babies and children. Um, spouses are leaders of each other. Uh, friends are leaders of other friends. So leadership and management are totally different. Leadership it is an interpersonal skill involving other people. Management is a task-oriented skill in which you need to ac accomplish certain tasks. And people who are good at tasks aren't necessarily good at people, and people who are good at people aren't necessarily good at tasks. So the combination of management and good leadership is actually rare, and people often divide in life between those who feel comfortable doing tasks, they go off and do management, and people who feel comfortable being with other people, they go off and do leadership. And so it's interesting how people self-select themselves out based on their own innate strengths and weaknesses. So do you think that disconnect, maybe that you have your MBAs in healthcare management and then your physician leaders, and that's where that clash comes in between healthcare management and physician sometimes and that different style of management versus leadership? It has nothing to do with training. It has to do with your own innate talents and skills and proclivities. Some people are extroverts by nature. Some people are introverts by nature. Some people like being around lots of other people. Some people like being alone. You know, there are plenty of accountants and anesthesiologists. Uh, an anesthesiologist once told me, I love being an anesthesiologist because all my patients are asleep. You know, there's a place in life for everybody. Uh, but the mistake is when people try to force themselves to be something they're not. And I see that all the time where you say, you know, I should be a leader, but I don't happen to like being around other people. Well, that doesn't work out so well. Or people who said, I want to do management, but I don't like meeting deadlines and doing lots of tasks in a time frame, time sensitive situation. Well, that doesn't work out either. So the important thing to do is look in the mirror 
and see who you are and see what drives you and what makes your clock tick and see what really are your strengths and weaknesses and then exploit the strengths and minimize the weaknesses. That's the best you can do. Take the hand you've been dealt and learn how to play it really well. So beyond just doing some sort of internal like um, inventory of your own personality and skills, what hard-hitting questions should you ask yourself to see if you really fit to be a leader in healthcare? Basically, you have to try it on for size. It's kind of like the best way to learn how to swim is to put your foot in the water first. And if you like that, go into your knee and then go into your waist and then plunge and take the dive. And what I always recommend to people in life is try lots of different things to see how it feels inside. Um, you know, you can say theoretically, well, I would like to do research or I'd like to do this specialty or that, but you don't really know what it's like until you actually try it on for size. So I recommend when you're young, trying as many different things as you possibly can, because you're going to discover things that you love that you had no idea that you would love. Um, because, you know, all you know is what's in your head and what's in your head is nothing to do with practical experience. So the more things you can try and put yourselves in different situations to try lots of different things, you'll sort it out very quickly as to what you really like, what you love and what you can't stand. And I always recommend to people, give yourself the opportunity of choice. And the only way you truly have choice is by trying on the cloth for size and seeing if it fits. So when you were going through this process of trial and error, how did you wind up on creating your consulting firm and ending up going down that pathway instead of a more clinical or academic route of medicine? Well, now you're asking for my life story. And I'll tell you <laughs> that when you look back on your life when you're my age, everything leads to the next thing. Your entire life is a stepping stone. And the step you're on now is leading you to the next step, only you don't know what the next step is. That's what's so interesting. You can look back and it all makes sense, but you can't really look forward. And I'll tell you just very briefly my own story. Um, when I got to college, I went to Johns Hopkins and you had to major in something and take lots of courses in physics or lots of courses in chemistry and lots of courses in biology. And I went to the dean and said, Dean, why can't I just take a little bit of everything? Why do I have to take a lot of one thing? And he said, because that's how people earn a living. They earn a living by being an expert in one thing and doing that one thing better than everyone else. And I said, well, I'd like to learn something about lots of different things. And he said, well, I don't really recommend it, but if you really are bent on that, we'll create a new major called humanistic studies. And you can just get 120 credits. It doesn't matter what you take. You can take music, science, literature. And I became one of three majors in 1969 <clears throat> who didn't major in anything. We got to do everything. And I went over to Peabody Conservatory and I took music. And then I went over to Johns Hopkins and I took laboratory uh, science. And then I went and took philosophy and poetry courses. And I thought to myself, you know, someday there's going to be a role for somebody who can put pieces together, you know, put pieces together in a puzzle and show you the whole picture. Then I went to medical school and the dean said, what do you want to specialize in? because I went to Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. And in that time, we were one of the top 10 schools. And the dean said, you got to subspecialize. 
because our school's known for specialization. I said, well, I want to go into family medicine. It was a brand new specialty then. He said, oh, we would discourage that. That's really not going to help the notoriety and the fame of our medical school. And I said, well, I believe there need to be some doctors that specialize in all fields and can put the whole picture together. And he gave me a hard time, but I was one of three graduates that year in 1977 that went into the new specialty of family medicine. I was the first graduate of Case Western Reserve to go into a residency of family medicine. Um, and I went to a, a family medicine program in Sacramento, California, where I could do surgery, I could do obstetrics, I could do C-sections, I could do tonsillectomies, I could do appendectomies, I could take care of neonates. I learned as many different things as I possibly could. And ironically, I ended up becoming an emergency physician in a rural hospital. And if you know anything about emergency medicine in a rural hospital, you become the house physician at night which means you not only work the emergency room, but you cover OB, you cover surgery, you cover the ICU. And I had to know a little bit of everything. So for 30 years in my practice, I got to do high-risk deliveries. I got to resuscitate neonates. <clears throat> I got to put in central lines and pacemakers and all that stuff because I was the only one available to do it in the remote rural area. So I got tired of, of, of practicing and I got elected chief of staff. And I discovered to my horror that I actually enjoyed management more than taking care of patients. And that was a horrible insight for me, but I discovered and I loved management. And so I ended up taking a bunch of courses and I ended up getting my MBA uh, because I enjoyed management so much. And I went and took a course with a company called the Greeley Company, which is a consulting company that consults in all matters pursuant to the organized medical staff. You've probably heard of that company. They're located in Danvers, Massachusetts. And I challenged the speaker and he challenged me back by saying, would you like to audition for the company? So I said, sure. So I went to the company and he said, what department do you want to work in? <clears throat> I said, all of them. <laughs> he said, well, you got to specialize in one department. You either got to specialize in quality or safety or, or credentialing or privileging or peer review or whatever. And I said, no, I'll do all of it. And you'll see, you'll have a need for people that you can just plug into any single project you could. So I became the all-purpose consultant for eight years at the Greeley Company. And I gave talks and I gave more talks than anyone else because I had over a hundred talks I could give because I learned a little bit about everything and could put it all together for people. Then I went off and started my own company. And I said, you know, whatever I did in Greeley, I'm gonna do even more. And so I taught myself operations and finance and human resources and all those other management fields like a supply chain, labor management. And I started doing all of it. That's why I called myself a network. And I found out that the things I really enjoyed doing is I love doing legal work as an expert witness, healthcare administrative expert witness. And I did so many cases and I enjoyed it so much. The lawyers said, why don't you go to law school? So I'm a first year law student right now. Wow. 70. And I'm going to be a healthcare <laughs> litigator. And I'm going to hold healthcare organizations accountable to try to increase and improve the standard of care. So when you ask me, how did I get involved in all this stuff? I've always been a generalist. I've always liked putting the whole picture of the puzzle together. And there are very few people out there <clears throat> who can explain an entire industry 
to people not in the industry or people in the industry. Most physicians see the healthcare industry through the tiny tunnel of whatever they decide to do or specialize in. And what they don't realize, it's an incredibly complex $3.4 trillion industry with incredible moving parts. <clears throat> and most physicians don't find out until fairly late in their career, if they find out at all, what those different moving parts are. And there's a real need for people out there who can put the whole picture together, who can put the puzzle together. And then this goes all the way back to my childhood. One of my favorite hobbies as a kid was putting together puzzles. And I started with 500, then 1,000 piece puzzles. Then I moved up to 5,000 piece, 10,000 piece, and finally 20,000 piece puzzles. And they used to cover the entire dining room. And, and, and then my mother would say, well, I'm having company next week, so you have to do this puzzle for time. Uh, so then I had to do it for speed. And that's what I do today. I put together puzzles for people. I basically tell juries, tell courts, tell clients. I give them the whole picture. I say, you give me all the pieces to your puzzle. I'll put together the puzzle, and I'll show you what the picture looks like. And that's essentially what I do for a living. And there's a real need for people like that because we're in such a specialty-oriented society where everybody learns how to do one thing really well, but very few people can put together all the different pieces and show how all those different pieces interconnect. So that was a very long-winded answer, but um, I had to go through that to tell you how I got to where I am today. I love the puzzle story you told. One of my good friends, Maddie, is the first person I met who did that same thing, would do puzzles for time with her family and race to put puzzles together together. Uh, and and it, for her, it was the same thing, problem solving. How do I figure out the best way to do this in the shortest amount of time and make it be successful? And by the way, when you become clinicians, you will discover that is an intuitive puzzle. It's not always a rational puzzle, it's intuitive, but you'll walk into a room and you'll be able to feel a differential diagnosis and you have to put that puzzle together in your own mind in a matter of minutes. So you'll find that differential diagnosis is a jigsaw puzzle that you'll put together. And by the way, the book I recommend to both of you, go get a copy of French's Differential Diagnosis. For instance, if you find a patient with shortness of breath or rash in a fever or low platelet count or a high white count, you can go to this book and look up all the diagnoses that could lead to that symptom or that sign. And it will help you start thinking a la differential diagnosis. And you can learn what the common causes of that are and what the rare causes of that are. And that's nothing you learn the first two years of medical school. But I suggest you start applying that to real life patients as you get into your clinical rotations. As someone who can see the whole picture of healthcare, did this kind of lead you to um, your follow the money analogy? So could you also give a little bit of background of like maybe how you came up with that analogy, what it is and how you apply it in your consulting business? Human beings are driven by economics. You know, Peter Drucker once said famously in 1954, culture eats strategy for lunch. And I say economics eats everything. If you want to change human behavior, put a pot of gold at the end of a pathway and everyone will go down that pathway to get to that pot of gold because financial security drives human behavior. Okay. It's just the way it is. And if you don't believe me, talk to people older than you who will tell you whenever, whenever young people tell me, oh, money needs means nothing to me. I say, well, that means one of three things. You're either not married yet. 
you don't have kids yet who've been to college or you've never been through a divorce or you haven't figured out that people who are a lot less smart than you are are living a lot better than you are because they figured out how to make money. And uh, economic security really drives human choice, human behavior, et cetera. That's why, frankly, you went to medical school instead of nursing school. I hate to say that, but nurses can do what you can do and make a lot less money. And, you know, I always say there are two things that you need to do to go to medical school. You need to want to help people and you want to earn a good livelihood. And those are the two combinations. And people don't like talking that honestly. But people like me who are apolitical, we get to say the things that people think but don't want to talk about. But, but the fact is that economic incentives dry everything. So if you look at why so many doctors want to become surgeons and do procedures all day, because that's where the money is. You make, you make four times more living doing procedures all day than being a psychiatrist or a pediatrician or a general internist. So the problem in our country is we're so driven by the fee for service, high margin procedures and tests. That's where all the doctors want to be. That's where all the hospitals want to be. That's where all the healthcare systems want to be. So our entire industry, the reason why we die um, younger than 36 other countries is we spend our whole industry doing procedures and tests all day and not preventing illness and not identifying illness at a very early stage. And all of our economic incentives in healthcare are built around learning how to do procedures and tests. And doctors all who wanna make money wanna do as many procedures and tests as possible. And that's been a very destructive incentive. So what you'll find as you learn more about the business is people go where the money is. Hospitals go where the money is. And when you ever hear center of excellence, when you hear that expression, centers of excellence, what that really means, centers of high margin, ancillary and elective revenues. Okay, that's what center of excellence really mean. Okay, <laughs> and by the way, if you're going into research, Peter, you want to do business research, not physiologic or biologic research, <laughs> because that's where the money is right now. Right now, we're going through a revolution and we're figuring out how can we recreate the business model for healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do well in research, those are the problems that need to be solved, not mitochondria today. So or I messenger have a, RNA. I have a question for you then. Yep. If, if we're still in very much a fee-for-service model, why do you think this past match, psychiatry completely filled up? There are no other psychiatry spots left this past year. Uh, because the business model for psychiatry is cash. You think the psychiatrists work in hospitals, but they don't. Mm -hmm. Psychiatrists take care of affluent people with cash. Okay, that's the business model for psychiatry. You know, when you're in psychiatry, you do one of two things. You either work for a relatively low salary for a hospital, and you take care of inpatient psychiatric patients, or you take care of affluent people on the outside, and you collect cash. And it's a very good business because it's a cash business. It's not a third-party payer business. You don't get paid by Medicare or Medicaid. You take care of affluent people who can afford the cash. And uh, that's why those programs fill up so well, because you can make a lot of money in psychiatry if you move to affluent areas like New York City or Boston or in Chicago or whatever, and you take care of affluent people, and you can live in a nice affluent suburb and take care of your neighbors. And a lot of people find that's a very nice lifestyle and they can work nine to five Monday through Friday. There are very few emergencies. The emergencies all go to the emergency department to get evaluated and it's a nice life and you can make a handsome livelihood, but that's why that uh, specialty fills.
By the way, another one like it is dermatology. And that makes even more money doing procedures on the outpatient side. I tried to get interest in acne. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm with you, Dr. Burroughs. Peter, Peter is one of the strange ones who can get interested in that. <laughs> I like immunology. What can I say? <laughs> well, now, immunology, there's money if you go to work for pharma. Well, and without getting into all my, my life goals, I, I do have a master's in biotechnology, and I would like to start a business one day. Good for you. And what you should do is go to work for a big business first before you start your own business, because that will teach you the business. And then you can figure out how do I create my own niche mm -hmm. that's under the radar that people need. So I really recommend that for your first job, once you get done with all your training, go to work for a really smart pharmaceutical company that does a lot of great immunological research and development. And then soak up everything you can learn from them and then start your own company because then you'll really learn the business and you'll have all these wonderful contacts that you'll need to start your company because you'll learn the supply chain. You know, you have to learn the supply chain, the distribution channels, all that stuff. And you'll learn the players, you'll learn how it works, you'll learn the anatomy and physiology of business, which is different than the anatomy and physiology of the human body. And once you know all that stuff, then you'll be in a great position to start your own company. It sounds reminiscent of what you did. So it I is. Wanted, I wanted to extend that back to you now. You worked for a large company. What do you think were a couple of the most valuable lessons that you took with you into your own consulting business? Uh, first of all, I learned that I didn't want to learn for, live. I didn't want to work for anybody else. That's a very important lesson to learn in life, by the way. Some people are not meant to work for other people. And that was an important lesson that I needed to learn. Um, I also learned that I could do what I could do better than what they could do. And it's really important to know yourself, to know what your cap true capabilities are and what they're not. And I could measure myself against other people who were very experienced in, as a consultant. And I could say, well, I'm better than that person in this, but that person's better than I am in that. So what I tried to do for eight years is learn the best that I could from everybody that I could, and then take the best that I learned, then take my own strengths and exploit that by building my own business. So it's really important when you go to work for anybody that you just become a sponge again, and you learn from everything, you learn from everybody. And if you're really smart, you'll learn from all the business executives in the company that you work for, how they do their job, because you're eventually going to have to manage all those jobs when you go off on your own. If you're a student or a physician who works in a hospital then in one of these big corporations, how do you suggest them learning about these topics, business of healthcare, and you said that many physicians don't get into or don't understand the system of healthcare till way later in their career. How do we push that forward so early trainees and early doctors can understand, but then work to change the system so we can improve it? Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the fastest growing demographics right now is the uh, physician executives. And physicians are becoming executives to manage multi-billion dollar systems. Now, that means getting an MBA or getting some type of business training. And by the way, the book I recommend you read on the side in your copious free time is a book by Michael Nowicki called An Introduction to Healthcare Finance. And it's really important to learn how healthcare finance works. And when you go over into the hospital or to the healthcare system or even the laboratory, Learn the business of what you're doing 
as you learn the clinical aspects of what you're doing. Because frankly, if you don't learn the business, you're going to be delegated to what I call the assembly line. And assembly line is doctors who are hired as employed doctors, FTEs, and all they do is see a line of patients all day. And what you don't want to do is be exploited. And if you don't learn the business, by definition and default, you'll become exploited as a unit of labor. And you do not want to become that unit of labor. You want to become the clinical executive who manages that labor, manages other doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, RNs, LPNs, clinical technologists, clinical assistants, clinical documentation specialists, et cetera. You want to be the leader and not the follower. But if you don't learn those skills, you'll make yourself the follower by default because doctors who only know how to diagnose and treat patients are going to be treated as commodities in this coming century, which means you'll earn what a good PA earns or good APN earns, advanced practice nurse, but you're not going to make the kind of money that you deserve unless you learn how to put it all together with the business of healthcare. So it's something I really recommend at Case Western Reserve now, one third of the entering class uh, are in the MB, MD, MBA program because they recognize that learning how to take care of patients is necessary and insufficient mm -hmm. to being an effective leader in the 21st century. You've got to learn the business of healthcare and the clinical aspects of healthcare and then put them together because they do go together as part of the puzzle. This reminds me of one of Caleb's favorite Atul Gawande quotes, which is, don't be a, another cog in the healthcare machine. Exactly. And if you all you learn is how to do procedures and tests all day, you will become that procedure cog, procedural cog. That's all you'll do. If all you know how to do is cut and sew, and there are a lot of surgeons, they just want to cut and sew all day. They don't want to think. They don't want to um, see new things. They don't want to manage. They don't want to learn the business of surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you become a technician, if you make yourself into a technician, that's how you'll be treated by the system. And a tool is absolutely correct, is if you become a technician, you'll be treated like a technician. And frankly, you'll be paid like a technician. So going back to something you said at the very beginning of our talk today, which is um, you, you, your life is kind of like this layering of experience over and over and over until, yeah. you, until you, you come to where you are. Um, how do you, so beyond, you know, reading books and learning on the side, what are some things that medical students, residents, attendings and people who want to break out of being the cog in the healthcare machine can do to kind of push themselves more into that physician leader role? Work with management. You know, you've got a lot of smart people in your organization who are now managing the system. And I would actually take electives to do administrative internships and to work with the CEO or with the CFO and, you know, learn how healthcare finance works, learn how healthcare operations works, learn how a CEO thinks and manages the whole system. This will be invaluable as electives in your thinking and, and how you look at your practice and how you look at what you do. If you don't understand the system, then all you can be is a cog um, because you don't know how to manage the system. And the system is complex, but it's learnable and it's teachable. And I really recommend that you don't deny yourself that opportunity to at least put your foot in the water to learn how the system works. So I want to go to that system now. You mentioned earlier that we pay, in this country, we pay physicians 
and medical personnel for procedures and for things that don't necessarily provide the best quality care, but are billable and are paid at a high rate. How can we change that to align the goals of keeping the patient healthy with the goals of the business of healthcare? Well, healthcare as an industry is moving from fee for service to pay for value. And right now, approximately 17% of all payer contracts, whether they're Medicare, Medicaid, commercial payers, are now pay for value, which means to say you're paying for some type of clinical outcome divided by some type of clinical cost multiplied by risk and severity adjustment. Okay, that means how sick the patient is, how complex the patient is. Okay, now Wall Street feels that when we get up to 29 or 30 percent, and this number is going up every year, we're going to get to the tipping point, and most payer contracts are going to move from fee for service to some type of risk based, capitated value based purchasing. So once we get there, then you're going to get paid for covered lives. And that's a different type of way to be paid. So a doctor will be paid for you manage these 5,000 covered lives. You keep them out of the hospital, out of the emergency department, keep their costs low, keep their healthcare outcomes high. And we'll pay you a dollar amount based upon the level of quality you're able to achieve and the least amount of cost you're able to achieve multiplied by risk and severity adjustment. And already around the country, almost one in five payer contracts are paid that way. So what's happening is, although 80% of people are holding on to the traditional fee-for-service model, the industry, whether it likes it or not, is moving in a very different direction. And what you want to learn to do is how to function in the new model because payers will pay you more if you embrace the new model than if you hold on to the old model, because the old model's getting paid less and less each and every year. I call it the Titanic. You know, the fee-for-service ship has already hit the iceberg. It's starting to sink. And every year you stay in fee-for-service, you'll get paid less and less. And if you don't believe me, ask an ophthalmologist what they used to get paid for a cataract surgery and ask them what they're paid today. Ask an OBGYN what they used to get paid for a C-section or hysterectomy and what they're paid today. And ask a cardiologist what they used to get paid for cardiac catheterization and what they get paid today. And what you'll see is their pay has been cut by 70, 80, 85% over the last 20 years uh, compared to the standard of living. So fee-for-service is sinking. And the question is, do you want to get into a sinking model or a rising model? And so that's what you're going to need to have to figure out. And you should figure out how to be successful in the new model as opposed to the old model. So I have two questions for you. The first one is, how long has this transition been taking? And when do you think that tipping point will be? And then my second question after that is, so what happens to the procedure-based specialties and the highly compensated specialties when you reach that tipping point? Okay, both excellent questions. First of all, this has been going on for about 20 years now, um, and it accelerated with the Affordable Care Act, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010 and upheld by the Supreme Court. Because one of the, uh, it really wasn't a healthcare reform law, it was an insurance reform law. And one of the key components of that law was the transformation of healthcare from fee for service to pay for value. And if you actually look at that law, fully a third of that law is around the payment models. 
Okay. It was a very important part of that law. And that's why the insurance company fought it so much because they didn't think they could make money. Now, the insurance companies are born again converts because they found out they can make more money in pay for value than they can in fee for service. So now Blue Cross and Blue Shield and the commercial payers and Medicare are leading the way. And you see new payment models coming up all the time. Now, Wall Street, and by the way, if you want to learn about healthcare, I would start reading the Wall Street Journal. Now, that's counterintuitive because your professors say, read the New England Journal, read JAMA, read Lancet. Okay, I get all that. That's very good uh, for medical information and medical management information. But if you really want to find out about the business of healthcare, read the Wall Street Journal because those are venture capitalists and investment bankers looking at the healthcare industry. And they have a very different look on it. And what they predict is within seven to 10 years, we'll be at the tipping point. And we, but the problem is you, it'll take three or four years just to get ready for that tipping point. Now, what's going to happen to the highly paid? I'll tell you what's going on right now. And if you don't believe me, talk to a cardiothoracic surgeon. Their pay is going down and primary care pay is going up. What both Democrats and Republicans in Congress have already decided is they're going to start paying all doctors and all specialties the same which of course is gonna really burn the procedurists because they're used to much higher pay, in fact, three to four times higher pay than the generalists. But the generalists are gonna be managing covered lives. And the doctors who are gonna be making seven figures are doctors who are willing and able to manage covered lives on behalf of health plans. And doctors who can do that are gonna make the big money. And doctors who are doing procedures and tests all day are gonna be treated as technologists. And by the way, if you go to many organizations today, a lot of surgery now is being done by trained technologists, not physicians at all. They're just people who do procedures all day. For instance, I've been to healthcare systems where if you're doing a total hip or total knee, you have a surgical technologist who opens the knee, opens the hip, the orthopedist comes in, puts in the implant, tests the implant, leaves the room, and the technologist closes up the joint again. And meanwhile, the surgeon can do three times as many cases. So a lot of the surgery that that is done by physicians today are going to be done by much lower cost people who can do the routinized part of the procedure and leave the most complex or nuanced part of the procedure to a physician. So you're going to see all kinds of nuances around that, not to mention the fact you're going to have trained coders uh, entering data in the electronic healthcare record. You're not going to see physicians sitting at a computer terminal, which is a total waste of money and time, by the way. So this is all going through a revolution right now. And a lot of people have their head in the sand and a few organizations get it and they're doing all these things. So who do you think has control over this transition? Is it the government? Is it insurance industries? Is it the healthcare team? Who's controlling this tipping point? I'm going to ask and both of you. You Both of you are very bright. So I'm going to ask you, who do you think is controlling all of this? And I'll ask a parallel question. Who controls the federal government? Economics. Okay. And who controls the economics in the United States? Wall, Wall Street. <laughs> You're very close. Large corporate entities. Corporate entities run the government. They run the state government. They run the federal government. They pay to get politicians elected. They run the healthcare system because we're still in an employer-based healthcare system. Um, who do you think started third-party payment after the influenza pandemic, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1917? 
John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford. Why? Because they lost half their labor force to the Spanish flu in 1917 and 1918 in their pandemic that they went through. So big corporate interests run everything, including everything that you do in healthcare. Now, we don't like to acknowledge that, but doctors are not in control. Healthcare administrators are not in control. Politicians and insurance companies are not in control. The corporations are in control. And I call it the big fish eating the middle-sized fish. So basically, corporations can, can force insurance companies to do their bidding and force the government and force the healthcare system. Because remember, CMS is overseen by Congress financially, even though it's part of the executive branch in the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is where follow the money comes in. So he or she who controls the money controls the system. Okay, and they control this whole transformation we're going through. And the reason why corporate entities are sick and tired of fee for service is they don't feel they're getting their money's worth. They said they're paying for all these expensive procedures and tests. And meanwhile, you know, they don't have the outcomes that 36 other countries have in economically developed nations to show for it. And also healthcare is the single largest line item on their corporate budgets. Um, so corporations have had enough, which is why since they control both political parties, they're making this happen against everybody else's will. Believe me, doctors and healthcare executives do not like this revolution going on. It's really causing a big headache, but the corporations have decided, folks, it's happening whether you want it or not. Where, where then does burgeoning disruptive technologies kind of come into play here? Okay, so let me define, because I used to work with Clay Christensen. Let me define for you what disruptive means, because a lot of people think it's just odd and quirky new ideas that take over. What happens when an industry is getting economically squeezed is it focuses on its high margin, high paying stuff. In other words, how much does your healthcare system invest in preventative healthcare, in alcoholism, in drug addiction, in mental health? Well, there's no money in that stuff. <clears throat> so they do lots of procedures and tests. They want to create a service line about around women's services, neurosciences, and cardiovascular. You know, that's where the money is, okay? Now, what happens is the healthcare system starts to abandon its own low end, okay? So it focuses so much on the stuff that pays the bills that it gives up the stuff. And you see many hospitals give up obstetrics, give up uh, charity care give up mental health, give up drug addiction or opioid addiction treatment. There's no money in it. When that happens, it creates a vacuum, a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum and so does business. And when there's a vacuum, you have pent up demand. And what happens is other industries <clears throat> look at that void at the bottom of the industry that we seated or sacrificed and says, you know something, we have a different business model. We can take care of opioid addiction. We can take care of preventative health care. But Walgreens, we have a different method. CVS, we have a different method. Walmart, we have a different method. Google, we have a different method. We have a different way of doing business and we can do it a lot cheaper than you can. And we can do it virtually. And we can do it with a lot more technology and a lot less bricks and mortar. And we can do it and make a profit in a way that you don't know how to do. So disruptive innovation is actually when an industry abandons its own low end, creates a vacuum that other new entrants 
fill that vacuum. They're filling, they're answering pent up demand with a very different business model. And that's how disruptive innovation takes over. It has nothing to do with quirky new ideas. It has to do with an industry sacrificing its own low end. And I'll give you an example in the pharmaceutical industry. Pharma started outsourcing research and development. They said, that's the pain in the neck. That's the expensive part. We just want to get paid for manufacturing distribution and marketing. That's all we want to get paid for. The problem is those companies that did the R&D said, you know something, we've developed the product. It's not a big stretch now to do the manufacturing, distribution, and marketing. I think we'll take that over. And that's what happens with disruptors. They come into your industry. Walmart now is starting walk-in clinics with doctors. They're going to start building ambulatory centers. They're going to start doing supply chain management to healthcare systems and all that. So a lot of people say, well, we don't want that business. But the problem is they come upstream and then they start eating your high margin lunch. And that's why disruptive innovation is so important. And that's why it's important to pay advantage, take advantage and pay attention to what you're abandoning and what other industries are taking over. So let's, uh, let's use the COVID vaccine as an illustration of what you're talking about. Could you walk us through the business and the finance behind that? Well, it's a different kind of vaccine. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but before Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson came out with their vaccine, the world record for creating a vaccine was four years. And that was the mumps vaccine. And that's because they were using old technology, dead virus, killed virus, new virus. Okay, you know, this is an immunologist. That's how you originally did vaccines. You injected a dead virus of the measles or the mumps and people developed immunity to this virus. Well, they figured out that we could do this a lot faster if we use messenger RNA technology that creates a protein spike for the molecule for COVID-19. And then the body can form an immunity to the protein spike. And we don't have to inject virus at all. Well, that was a brand new technology. And it's a lot cheaper technology. And also countries were putting billions of dollars on the table and creating a corporate race to see who could get there first. And Moderna and Pfizer are the two huge winners, because even though Johnson & Johnson has a very viable vaccine, its immunity protection is significantly less than that of Moderna and Pfizer, which for people with high risk conditions is a big deal. So the business model changed entirely. So the business of creating the vaccine is now genetic engineering. It's a different model, much cheaper model, much more sophisticated model, but much cheaper model. When you can do that for a protein spike, you can do that for anything that you can genetically map. So the beauty of it is now you can take any molecule with any structure and you can create the messenger RNA within months that will transcribe onto that physical model that will create an antigen that will stimulate an immunological reaction. Um, so this was revolutionary. And one of the silver linings of this whole pandemic is that it forced technology to take a giant leap forward into this wonderful new technology of vaccine, which I hope will be applied to many other diseases that we don't have adequate vaccination or immunization for. I also wanted to ask you about the um, economic situation around the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, could you help us follow the money for, I guess, lack of a better term, you know, every, so I understand that like people were out of business. Um, the healthcare system was overloaded for a second. 
<laughs> yeah, here's my assistant, by the way. <laughs> my assistant, by the way, this is Yoshi. He appeared in People Magazine and the Washington Post as Zoom bombing the New Hampshire legislature. He's a very uh, cute guy. Yes, COVID is an example of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Um, there's been untold wealth from COVID. Um, who's made the money? People with virtual businesses. They've made a fortune. Um, Amazon made a fortune. Google, fortune. Uh, Microsoft and Apple, fortune. You know, people are stuck at home. So now we have all this virtual technology to service people at home. And what's interesting is a lot of this isn't going to go away after the pandemic. <clears throat> you know, I do a lot of legal work. I was at Zoom trials. I was at Zoom depositions during the COVID pandemic. These are going to continue <clears throat> post-pandemic because they're a lot cheaper and easier. Um, now, who, who were the big losers? People in the service industry in the traditional bricks and mortar. In other words, if you have a little soda shop or you have a little hamburger stand or mom and pop this or mom and pop that, you lost your shirt. Okay, so what COVID did is forced the digitization of business. And if you're a mom and pop who didn't create a virtual business and create a website and create a way to distribute and market your goods and services virtually, you got wiped out. You got wiped out during the pandemic. So it forced a lot of people. And by the way, healthcare is in the same situation. A lot of healthcare systems lost 40 to 60% of their operating revenue during COVID. Stanford University made a fortune. Why? 40% of their primary care is done virtually. So they just expanded it. 35% of their operating revenue is virtual revenue. Okay, I would ask Wayne State, your organization, what percentage of your operating revenue is virtual revenue from virtual healthcare? And I'll bet the number's pretty low. Um, so again, healthcare systems that virtualized and digitized did really well during the pandemic and those that didn't took a huge hit. So it really separated the haves and the haves nots. People willing to embrace the new business model of virtual healthcare and virtual business and people who didn't and held on to the old bricks and mortar model, which frankly is dying. <clears throat> so is that the big takeaway from the pandemic as far as business of healthcare? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of smart people feel that within 10 years, 80% of healthcare is going to be virtual. 15% is going to be ambulatory, bricks and mortar, like, uh, like the CVS clinics, minute clinics, or uh, Walmart clinics, et cetera, a uh, ambulatory surgery center, <clears throat> ambulatory uh, teleimaging centers, et cetera, et cetera. And only 5% of revenue is going to come from the inpatient side. So the question is for healthcare executives is what of what we do in a hospital can be done outside of the hospital and what have we done outside the hospital can be made virtual. And I'll give you a classic example, post-operative care. 90% of post-operative care is routine. You don't need to go to a building and sit in a waiting room and see a doctor. You have a scar that's healing fine. You have no itching, you have no burning, you have no infection, you have no fever. Why not just use, do that on your iPhone? Why not do it on your Android? Why do I have to drive somewhere and see somebody? Most pediatric exams can be now done virtually, particularly with virtual technology and virtually virtual wireless technology for testing. Your analysis, CBC, um, ear exam, throat exam, eye exam, heart and lung exam, that can all be done virtually now. 
Um, you don't need to be in person. So again, the part of the revolution that's going on is everything's trans transferring from inpatient to outpatient and from outpatient to virtual. And the question is how quickly can you do that? and how effectively. And the problem for most doctors is they were brought up in this bricks and mortar system where everyone comes to me, not I go to them. But the model in the 21st century is going to be the patient is where you go to virtually and do as much as you can in the outpatient side and as much as you can digitally. Well, let me ask you a question about that then, because when I look at the EMRs and some technology in healthcare, it's often very behind the curve as far as you know, where technology is, do you think we'll be able to keep up and, and there'll be those innovations that people catch on to? Innovation always leads regulation by at least five to seven years. And what you're going to see is the innovators who are the entrepreneurs are going to lead the way in healthcare and drag the rest behind. And by the way, there's a wonderful model um, um, uh, called the diffusion of innovations by Everett Rogers. And he's the one who came up with the term early adopters, early majority, late majority and laggards. Okay, and I call the the laggards, I call them the freedom fighters. (laughs) And basically, with every new innovation, 15% of people get it right away, and they embrace it right away. Um, 35% have to wait until it's a proven entity, um, and then they embrace it. Then it becomes a tipping point. Then the late majority have to go along, and the laggards are the last to go along, and some of them won't go at all. And um, so you've got to go through this whole change management process, and some healthcare systems really get all this, and some do not get all this, and that's why there's such a bell curve out there in terms of both quality and terms of operating margin. And what I've seen as a consultant, because I've been to over a thousand organizations around the country, is this huge bell curve out there in terms of who's doing what for what cost, because certain healthcare management teams get the whole revolution and others do not. With the new technologies that are coming out that are helping us to further digitize healthcare and um, make it more efficient and move towards a quality space, which I think are all things that we can get on board with, at what point... Or do we become worried about the human aspect of medicine? That's always been a problem. And it's a problem right now, by the way. And if you don't believe me, sometime you're a patient, go to the traditional bricks and mortar and see how you're treated. You feel like you're a piece of meat on an assembly line. You know, you take a number, you fill out forms, you sit around and wait all day. It can take three, four hours to see someone for five minutes. It's a dehumanizing experience. So frankly, right now, we've already dehumanized medicine plenty. You know, I go around the country giving whole seminars on how to do customer service because unfortunately it's a necessary skill now. And it's the number one driver of healthcare compliance, which is the number one driver of quality and safety, which is the number one driver of margin and financial performance. So the problem is we've gone far away from the Marcus Welby model of the one doctor seeing one patient for one hour. And we've gone to this kind of, assembly line approach where doctors see someone for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you barely have time to say hello and listen to what their concerns are. And uh, woe, woe be you if you don't have a, a condition that fits knit, neatly into a little category, a little box, because the doctor will want to get rid of you because they have to see the next patient in another seven minutes. So um, it's, it's a big problem right now. We've already dehumanized healthcare. And the question is, can we add the technology and rehumanize healthcare and put the humanity back into healthcare? 
And that's going to be the challenge. It's not a matter of either or, it's can we do the and? Mm -hmm. um, because you can be dehumanizing without technology and you can be dehumanizing with technology. And the question is, can be, we be humanizing with either? I think that's going to be the big task for our generation of physicians coming up. Yeah, and you're going to... And you're going to see the economic pressures on you to go faster and faster and faster, which is why, by the way, you want to be in the management position and not on the assembly line. Because one of your invaluable roles as managing the assembly line is to do service interventions. And I always tell doctors, there's a clinical diagnosis and a service diagnosis, meaning there may be a clinical diagnosis like they have ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, but they also may have economic issues. And that's the service diagnosis. How am I going to afford this? Okay. And if you really want to hit a home run in healthcare, you have to get the clinical diagnosis right and get the service diagnosis right. And if you don't focus as much on the service diagnosis, then by definition, you're dehumanizing it for the patient because the patient, yeah, they care about the clinical diagnosis, but you know something, the service diagnosis is even more important to them than the clinical diagnosis is. I think that's a really compelling thought to end, end the conversation on for now, hopefully. Um, but Dr. Burroughs, we like to ask all of our leaders uh, a standardized question at the end. And you've already kind of answered this going through, but um, what books would you recommend to young medical leaders? And then I want to add the addendum, ones that you haven't already mentioned in the podcast so far. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so there's one book I wrote that I'm going to recommend, and there's one book I didn't write that I'm going to recommend. Sure, you can do that. Um, um, uh, and the book I'm that I wrote, I'm proud to say, won a National Book Award this year. Um, and uh, it's called Essential Operational Components for High-Performing Healthcare Systems. And it will really give you an introduction into how the system works and all of its component parts. Okay, and um, it's called Essential Operational Components for High-Performing Healthcare Enterprises. And it's published by Health Administration Press and you can also get it on Amazon. Now, the book I didn't write that is my favorite healthcare book in the last 10 years, I will show it to you right now, is book written by the late Craig Christensen and the late Jerry Grossman, both remarkable human beings. And you can't see it because it's backwards on the screen, but it's the innovator's prescription. And it was written over 10 years ago, and it's still as prescient today as it was 10 years ago. And I've actually read this book four times. It's that good. And there's so much important information there to understand where healthcare is going and how disruptive business works in healthcare. And it's a beautifully written book like all of Clay Christensen's book. And by the way, I, I recommend all of his books. They're wonderful. He was a remarkable human being. I